This morning we are continuing our journey through the book of Leviticus. And one of the things that we discover in this book is that at times we hit almost like a grocery list of laws that God has set up for his people. But there are a couple things that are going to happen in this chapter that give us almost like key quotes to kind of hang those laws on. And and I love when you find a good quote. You know, when you get a good one-liner that really kind of lets you anchor in on a bigger truth or a bigger idea. And a lot of times when people find those, they become famous quotes. But, But a lot of times we don't often realize where those quotes actually started from. Here's one of my favorite examples. Have you heard this quote? Winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Any sports fan knows that this comes from the legendary Packers coach, Vince Lombardi. Winning was everything to him. I mean, they named the Super Bowl trophy after this guy because he is a winner. But did you know he's not actually the first one who said that? He learned that from Red Sanders, the UCLA Bruins coach, where he heard it almost 10 years earlier, and it had even been quoted in a movie before the time that Vince Lombardi actually stated it. We all know it from Vince Lombardi, and and through him it spread further, but he actually got it somewhere else. And in a way, that really captures everything else that he would teach his players and how he would coach them. All of the strategy, all of the structure that he would put into his teams boiled down to that concept for him, that, that winning was the only thing. Well, you know, in Leviticus 19, we're going to see something kind of similar. There are a couple key quotes that really boil everything else down for us so that what we see here is that God shows us how to be like him so we can show others what he is like. And so Leviticus 19 will give us a list of different laws, but in the midst of that are two of the Bible's most famous quotes and a few ways that we can practice them to show other people what God is like. The first of those quotes is this. Be holy, for I am holy. I know the first time I encountered this was in 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter wrote, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. When he says, because it is written, he's talking about Leviticus. In Leviticus 19, 1 and 2, it says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, the first time I heard that, and many times since, I think, impossible. Right? How do we do that? Why would God even say that? We focus so much on who God is and his holiness throughout the book of Leviticus. And part of what we've emphasized is that God is so far above us. He is so powerful, so pure, so separate, so set apart that we can't even approach him unless he does something to make us clean, to make us holy. And so here's this statement. Because God is holy, we should be holy So to understand what he's really saying there, we've got to understand that word holy. Often we hear that and we just think of moral purity, and certainly that is part of it. But there's a bigger idea here, that the word holy really captures this sense that we are separate. That as followers of Christ, as those in relationship with God, we are set apart to him. And so it includes moral purity because of our relationship with God. Because our holiness impacts the way that we relate to him, And relate to other people. And so the foundation of all of the laws that we're going to hear this morning is who God is. 
In fact, 16 times through this chapter, he states his name. Uh, Two of those come in verse 12 and verse 37, where he says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And in verse 37, which comes at the end of the chapter, he says, Therefore you shall observe all my statutes, all my judgments, and perform them. I am the Lord. That's God stating his name. That name, Lord, Yahweh, means I am. I am the one who set the world into motion. I am the one who created you. I am the one who set you apart. And so when I tell you these things, it's because I want you to know who I am. And so even as we read these pages, my prayer for you is that this helps us to know God better. That we relate to him better because of who he is, because of his holiness. So be holy for I am holy is quote number one. The second quote is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now usually when we hear that, we probably think, well, Jesus said that. And he did. In Matthew 22, we see that people came to Jesus to challenge him. What is the most important law? Because they had not only all of the laws written in the Old Testament, but hundreds more that they had added to it themselves. And so they come to him and they say, if you're such a wise teacher... If you really are this great rabbi, what's the greatest law? And this is how he answered them. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Then he gives them like a bonus. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And that comes right out of Leviticus 19. Where verse 18 tells us, love your neighbor as yourself. And so these two famous quotes, be holy for I am holy, that's how we relate to God. How we live our lives in light of his holiness. Love your neighbor as yourself is how we relate to others in light of who God is. So that we can show them what he is like. And Jesus says that all of the law and the prophets hangs on this. Everything else rests on these things. So to help us understand God's commands better, how Jesus fulfilled them, and how he fulfills them in us, let's watch this clip. The next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's command wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem, and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there, to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems 
pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought the story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others. And he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. See, that gives an explanation of the victory that we sang about and we celebrated at the Lord's table this morning. That through Jesus, because he completely fulfilled the law, that he enables us to be able to live holy lives, lives of love, where Israel failed time and time again. And the reality is, in the rest of this chapter, there's a long list of almost random laws. But Jesus is going to show us how because he has fulfilled them, because he has shown us what God is like, that then God is showing us how to be like him so we can show others what he is like. So the way I think it's helpful to approach this chapter is to think of it almost like a, a grocery list. So in the 37 verses, there are more than 37 laws, and they seem almost kind of scattered. It, it's sort of like, um, and because she's not here, I can just tell you this, it's sort of like the way my wife makes a grocery list. <laughs> Pick up a piece of paper, we need, uh, and she can just think of it, right? Milk, toilet paper, cheese, toothpaste, and it's kind of all over the place. So if I'm going to go to the store, I have to go back to that list and say, no, no, milk and cheese... Let's rewrite this. Dairy. And under dairy, we put milk and cheese. And under household supplies, maybe toilet paper, toothpaste. Uh, That way, I I can actually find my way around the store. So that's a little bit of what we're going to do this morning. So you'll see that on the the slides that come up, like verse 3 and verse 30. And essentially what that is, is because this isn't written as a story chapter, but more of a collection of some of the things that God called his people in Israel to do, And so we're going to group them more by the department of the store that they might come from. But all of it is going to hinge on these two famous quotes, this concept of God's holiness and this call to love others. And so the first big area of the store that we're headed to is that we worship God uniquely because of his holiness. Right? So to be holy because he is holy means that we are separate, set apart, unique. And so we worship him that way. And the first way that he demonstrates that is that we worship God restfully. And he brings that up twice in this chapter. He says, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. Now remember that one for next week when we find out what happens if you don't. And he says, keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. 
Now that word Sabbath literally just means seven, but that's the word that he uses for rest because at the dawn of time, when God created everything, he worked for six days and he rested on the Sabbath, the seventh. And so he has given that to us as a rhythm of rest. And the idea there is that for all the work that could be done, God has built into the the body clock and the schedule of his people intentional moments to take a break from work, to replenish ourselves, to refocus ourselves on God. And so they had not only a Sabbath day, but they would have a Sabbath year, and many of their feasts were built around this idea of rest. And we remember in the New Testament that Jesus teaches us that the Sabbath is not to be our slave driver. It's not to be our master, but it was made for us for this very reason that God knows we need this. So what makes keeping a Sabbath so difficult? You know, if you've ever heard of Parkinson's law, see Northcote Parkinson wrote a book about this where he coined this phrase that work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. The idea being that the more work you do, the more work there is to do. (laughs) If you just stay at work, you will always have more work. And and this is something that I think can resonate in positive and negative ways, right? For some of us, Sabbath is difficult because we're workaholics. But that might be because we enjoy work. I, I love the work that I do. And so this actually is something that is kind of a battle in my own life. Because when we enjoy our work, you know, when we love that feeling of accomplishing something, of working with a team, the, the achievement of finishing a product, or, or really putting something out on the table that we say, this is finished, this is good, and we, we, we did this. You know, that can drive us to do more. And that's not necessarily bad, unless it begins to take over our lives. You know, so sometimes it's the drive to do more, sometimes it's the fear of failure. You know, the fear of competition, that if I don't keep working, if I don't come even earlier and stay even later, if I don't work every day, I'll fall behind. You know, someone else will pull ahead. Someone else will tell me it's not good enough. And Parkinson's law is kind of a warning to us that if we think that way, we'll never stop. So God says, stop, slow down, rest. One way that I've learned this in my own life is because if you give all of your time to work, even if you enjoy it, even if it's good stuff, what ends up happening, what ended up happening for me, is it meant that I'm spending less and less time with my wife, less and less time with my kids. And I'm, oh, well, they'll understand. I mean, I'm working, and this is good stuff, and they know I've got to make the checks, and I've got to bring in, and I've got to take care of the family, right? But what happens is those relationships start to drift, and it can hurt us. And so God has taught me this lesson, and I can remember the the morning that my wife and I sat at a restaurant to eat breakfast, and our only goal was to outline our top five priorities for our marriage. And we weren't going to leave the table until our top five were the same and in the same order. And first, for both of us, was our relationship with Christ. We believed that nothing else was going to work unless we were each focused on that first. But number two was that we had to make a Sabbath work. We had to build rest into our schedule. And so if you look at at my calendar for a week, there's multicolored different things that represent, you know, I'm working on this, or I'm working with these people, or I got this meeting over here. But there's one whole day blocked out with big black letters that just says Sabbath. And the reason for that is because I know I need that discipline, that I can see that coming tomorrow, so I don't save anything from today to do tomorrow unless I can save it for the day after that. 
Because we are going to take time to replenish and to refocus on God. So we worship God restfully. We also worship God thankfully. And verses 5 through 8 of chapter 19 are are essentially a short summary of the peace offering that we talked about in chapters 3 and chapter 7. So we'll go over this this one quickly because if you want more information on that, go back and read chapter 3, read chapter 7, or look up those messages. But it's the idea like rest that built into our calendar are times to stop and be thankful to God. So we worship God restfully, we worship God thankfully, and we worship God first. Now this is an interesting concept that he packs in here because God brings this to us as part of the be holy because I am holy. Part of this idea that we're set apart, but the way he talks about it to them is through like their crops and their clothes and their well-being and the things that they plant. So it's interesting. He says, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. Well, that's kind of strange. But the idea here is that this is a symbolic picture of how they are set apart, of how they have been made separate, called to God out of the world around them. So just as they don't mix livestock, they don't mix seed, they don't mix linen and wool, so too they are set apart. He goes on then to describe, when you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised. Three years it shall be as uncircumcised to you, and it shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, a praise to the Lord. And in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit, that it may yield to you its increase. I am the Lord your God. You see, God lays out here this idea of first fruits. That we worship God first. Not only do we worship him only, but we worship him with the first things in our lives. The best things in our lives. Now imagine what he's telling them. Because when they receive Leviticus, they're in the wilderness. If they even have seed with them, they don't have anywhere to plant it. And they wouldn't anyway because they don't want to stay there. They They are relying on God every single day just to survive. When he gives them manna and quail to eat today... If they try to tuck some under the pillow to save till tomorrow, it's rancid by morning. Every day they rely on God for sustenance. But when they come into the promised land, when they come into the land that God himself has described as flowing with milk and honey, and they can plant again, they can plant these trees that will bear fruit, then there's the temptation when we become sort of self-sustaining, when we see financial blessing, to move from counting on God for sustenance to feeling the peace of satisfaction and then slipping into almost greed. Well, then now that I'm here, I can gather ten times the fruit that I really need and isn't this awesome how much fruit I have? I don't know if I'll need all of it, if I'll use all of it. And so God gives them this picture that before they have any of the fruit, for three years, they treat it as uncircumcised. Nobody eats it. Now, there's some agricultural hint that that this actually means that if you do this for trees, later they will bear more, bigger, and better fruit. But God's asking them to trust. When you come into the land and you have this abundance, will you trust me if I say, don't take advantage of it for three years? Well, what about the fourth year? Well, in the fourth year, all of it is given to God. That the best of what they have is given to him, and in the fifth year, then they may eat it. It yields its increase. They enjoy the abundance. 
You see, I think this is a call from God to his people. And although we may not be planting trees, I think it's a call to us to contentment. To understand that we serve God first. What would it look like to give to him first? Not what's left over at the end of the budget. Not what's left over after all the other things that we want to do. But if first and foremost we trusted God with the abundance he gives us. So we worship God restfully. We worship God thankfully. We worship God first. And then he tells us this. Don't identify with idols. Now that seems clear, should be straightforward, but he brings it up three times in verse 4, 26, and 31 to make sure that we've locked this in. That if the idea of being holy means that we are set apart to him, then we shouldn't worship or identify with anything else. So verse 4 says, Do not turn to idols, nor make for yourselves molded gods. I am the Lord your God. And there's a pretty interesting play on words here because the word God, when we talk about God in the Old Testament, the word there is Elohim. Elohim means God. When he tells them not to make these molded gods, the word there is Elohim. Sounds very similar. means something very different. It, it literally means nothings. Don't turn to these nothings. Whatever it is that it feels like protects you, keeps you safe, provides for you. If it's not Elohim, if it's not God, it's nothing. And so he tells them not to give in to divination, not to give in to mediums and familiar spirits. These things are idols. Now, they may not be for us. Now, probably not a lot of us are are looking for soothsayers or looking for mediums. But what God's indicating is that there is a part of us that can worry about the future. And there is a part of us that wants to know that we can predict the future or, or in some way control the future because if we just had some certainty about the future, we'd feel more comfortable today. And God is saying, don't turn to anything else for your certainty about the future. Trust me. See, sometimes idols are good things that can become ultimate things in our lives. You know, sometimes they're the things that distract us from God, draw us away from Him, or, or sometimes they're just the things that influence our decisions more than God does. You know, one question you could ask yourself to, to determine what an idol might be for you is what do I primarily identify with? You know, if I describe myself, what is like the most important thing about me? Is it my work? Is it my career? Is it my reputation? If my reputation is on the line... Do I make my decisions based on that or based on the holiness that God has called me to? Do I sacrifice my integrity for the sake of what people think about me? Or is it my physical appearance? Is it the way I present myself to people? Is that the thing that I I think about the most, spend the most time on? Is it the happiness that I'm trying to provide for myself or my family, which can be a good thing? But if it becomes the ultimate thing, then it distracts us from identifying with God. There's a few verses in in 27 to 29 that kind of give examples of this. How he warned his people at that time against identifying with other idols. And one of those is an idol that was called Oratol. And he's also identified with Dionysus from the Greek and Roman world. I think we've got a picture of him here. And, And so God tells them in verses 27 and 28, Don't cut your hair in circles. Because that's a sign that you identify with Oratol. He says, don't cut yourself when you mourn for the dead or make tattoos on you. And now commentators give us essentially two options for why he says that. 
One of them is that, as we've seen through Leviticus, blood is very important to God. Blood matters, and so he doesn't want them to do anything that disrespects his creation and sheds blood. So if they mourn the dead, don't cut yourselves when you mourn. If you worship that idol, don't tattoo yourself because that's cutting into the flesh. And so the other part of, that, uh, that, of the options that commentators give is because these were practices that identified with pagan gods that were around them. These nothings. But it's not just gods who have names. Verse 29 gives kind of a different example. It says, Do not prostitute your daughter to cause her to be a harlot, lest the land fall into harlotry and the land become full of wickedness. Okay, do we really need this one, God? Was this really a problem? (laughs) I mean, it should be obvious, right? Who would prostitute their own daughter? But the picture here is somebody who is more worried about money than about holiness. And so if the money dries up, if the thing they were counting on disappears, what lengths would they go to for a quick buck? Would they go even to selling their own daughter? God says, don't do it. Do not let money be your idol. You see, if we're going to be holy because God is holy, then we only want to do things that identify us with him. Because when we understand God's holiness, it not only affects the way we relate to God, but it affects affects the way that we relate to each other. And so just as we worship him uniquely, we also love others uniquely. Love others uniquely because God loves you. That's one of the ways that God shows us how to be like him so we can show others what he is like. And so he goes on and he tells us that we should love others generously. Okay, so this is like the the love others part of the grocery store. So love others generously. And he gives a really unique example here. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, and you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. See, as they harvested their fields, he's telling him, leave the corners behind. As they're harvesting the grapes, the olives, they would go through and they would beat the vines to make the grapes fall off. And he's telling them, don't go back and shake the vines to get every last grape. You don't need every last grape. You don't need every last olive. You don't need every last grain. You don't need every last dime. But leave those things for the poor and the stranger. Again, he's giving us a picture of contentment ourselves so that we can be generous toward others. And I think this is such a powerful picture because I was thinking about this the other day, trying to figure out what does that look like for me since I don't have fields or vines? You know, what does it look like to leave the corners of my fields? And it kind of struck me that even when God calls us to give and when he talks about percentages of their increase and all that kind of stuff— That would be after they already left the corners of the fields out there. Literally like leaving money on the table so that the poor and the stranger can be provided for. And one of the coolest ways I think this shows up in the Old Testament is in the story of Ruth. If you know Ruth's story, she was poor and a stranger. A Moabite woman among the Israelites and her husband and her father-in-law both died. So she literally had nothing to her name, and yet she finds herself among God's people. Now imagine what this would be like. If God is telling us, love others generously because I have loved you, that she knows she's provided for because people who are obeying God's command leave the corners of their fields behind. 
And her story tells us how she would go out and glean in the corners of the field. And she found herself in a field belonging to a man named Boaz. And I love what Boaz says when he comes out. It says, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, which would include Ruth, the Lord be with you. I love that because that's, that's one of the places, I think, that we see someone declare, I'm doing this because I'm trying to show the Lord to you. Right? It, it's not just generosity, thanks, you're welcome. It's, it's generosity, may the Lord be with you. This is on his behalf. I'm showing you his love. Even though I don't even know you people, the Lord be with you. In fact, Ruth sees the love of God so clearly through Boaz. She sees Boaz's love that Ruth and Boaz actually get married. And they have a son named Obed who becomes the grandfather of King David, who is the ancestor of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, who would fulfill this law perfectly to demonstrate the love of God to other people. So we love others generously, and we love others honestly. In verses 11, 13, and 35 to 36, God gives a a litany of instructions on why we don't steal or deal falsely or lie to each other, how not to cheat each other. He includes even that if somebody works for you today, pay them today. Don't keep it till tomorrow. If you owe them that, give it to them. He he talks about in the justice system and when we are uh, selling and trading Always to use honest weights. Always to use honest measures. Not to use a little bit of something different when you're buying because you want a deal and something a little bit different when you're selling because you want more profit. But to deal honestly and equally in all situations. He, He adds to that that we also love others fairly. He says, do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the person of the mighty. Now that's interesting, I think. Because often we think kind of one direction or the other, but he says the poor and the mighty are on the same plane, standing before God and standing before us, that we want to rid the land of injustice and we want to bring justice to everyone. And so we don't show partiality to anyone, either because they are poor or because they are mighty. We treat everyone the same, and in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And then in verses 17 and 18, he says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall surely rebuke your neighbor. And not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. And here it is. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think there's an interesting juxtaposition there between rebuking your neighbor and loving your neighbor. You see, as we go through these laws, there's some of them that that sound like easy, right? Don't prostitute your daughter. Well, thank goodness I've never done that. Respect your mother and father. Oh, I've usually done that right and and it's easy for us to start making a list of thank goodness i don't do these things while there's also stuff like oh hating your brother in your heart you know like the video mentioned do we do we disrespect people do we resent people does that start to take hold of us do we bear grudges do we talk about people behind their backs are we tail bearers and so god is saying if we're going to love each other then if you see somebody slipping into this kind of a life pattern The loving thing is not to say, well, I love you, so I'll just let you do whatever. The loving thing is to rebuke them. Now, we can do that with grace. We can do that with mercy. There's stuff in the New Testament that says sometimes you do that gently, sometimes you do that harshly, depending on what they need. But the idea is to to turn them back because the most loving thing 
is to bring them back to the love of God, back to the holiness that God has called them to. So in verse 20 to 22, we get what I think is an example of this. And honestly, these are a few difficult verses. This is one of those places where you're looking at your grocery list and you're not really sure what part of the store this belongs in. <laughs> like soy milk. Is that, is that milk? Is that, is that dairy? Or, and so you search all over dairy. Where, where is the soy milk? Okay, like it's in organic today, it's in dairy tomorrow, I don't know. So, so this part's a little bit like soy milk, but I think if you bear with me, we can see how it's really a demonstration of the way, the way that we rebuke and love others fairly. This is what it says, Whoever lies carnally with a woman who is betrothed to a man as a concubine, and who has not at all been redeemed nor given her freedom, for this there shall be scourging, but they shall not be put to death because she was not free. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, a ram as a trespass offering. The priest shall make atonement for him with the ram, the trespass offering, before the Lord for his sin, which he has committed. And the sin which he has committed shall be forgiven him. What? (laughs) All right, so here's the best that I can bring you from the commentaries that I've studied this week to help us make sense of this, because there's some weird stuff going on in here. But ultimately, the way we understand this best is that God is not in this moment trying to make a commentary on slavery or a commentary on concubines. Primarily what he's emphasizing is that there is a man here who has treated a woman as if she is property. So for whatever else is going on, God is taking this moment to say he needs to be rebuked. Right? To demonstrate love to this woman, we need to stand up for her personal rights Because he is treating her as property, and that is not okay with God. And so that's the the way that that most commentaries understand this, is that even the personal rights of a slave or a concubine were to be upheld because they are a human being, because they are created by God. And so it does call it a sin, but it also demonstrates that love and mercy are still available, that the sin that he has committed can be forgiven him. So God has called us to love generously, to love honestly, to love fairly. And then he calls us to love personally and purposefully. We've seen that through some of these examples already. But in verses 14 and 32, he gives very specific examples of how to love certain kinds of people. For example, he says, you shall not curse the deaf. Makes sense. To, To curse someone, to speak evil against them, and they can't even hear it. I mean, that's about as unloving as you can be. Or he says, do not put a stumbling block before the blind. I mean, isn't there a part of you that's like, man, God, what kind of people are you talking to who would do that? To put a block in front of somebody who can't see it to make them stumble. And yet, don't miss the spiritual overtones of this. Don't slip, like I sometimes do, into the self-righteousness of, I would never do that. Because there are moments where in our own failings, it is like we are cursing the deaf. It is like we are the blind, leading the blind, that we can cause each other to stumble when we don't love each other the way that God has asked us to. Because being holy before God, loving others the way he loves us, means that we look at them, we consider their needs, and we love them accordingly. He also gives the example of the gray-headed. He says, honor the presence of an old man, and fear your God, I am the Lord. And he's reminding us very carefully You know, that those who have been with you for some time, those who have been through this journey in the wilderness, if they have made it far enough that they have gray hair, guess what? 
They've got life experience that they can share with you. They've got wisdom to share with you. Don't think that because you're younger or more energetic that that you don't have something that you still need to learn. But pause. Rise when they're in your presence. Give honor to their presence. Learn from them. Fear Fear your God because he is the Lord. And finally, in verses 33 and 34, I think he brings this all back together with these words. If a stranger dwells with you in your land... You shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. And listen to this. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. See, he bases it again on who he is. But where we started with love your neighbor as yourself, now he says love the stranger as yourself. That these are the same. Because it would be easy for them to say, well, we have been set apart We are different, and and we can't love you. But God's saying, when they come into your land, show them what I am like. Show them who I am. Remember, you were strangers, and I brought you out of Egypt? Show them that kind of love. Because ultimately, what makes us holy, what makes us separate, is not that we're different. Right? It, it's not about which walk of life we come from or what country we've come from or, or who we are or where we live, but it's that in Christ we are set apart to God. In Christ, we are made holy. In Christ, we love others. I like that in that video it says that our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And as Israel failed time and time again, so there will be times, and let's be honest, there have been times, when we have failed to fulfill the law. And so we rest in knowing that Jesus Christ, our Savior, fulfilled it completely. And that through Him, God sees His righteousness in us. That we are credited with His righteousness even as we are being made holy, made to learn to live this way that God has designed for us in the way that God shows us how to be like him so we can show others what he is like. So we got all the groceries in the cart now? (laughs) Are we ready to check out? You know, sometimes you you, you check out and you get home and you find out there's one thing you forgot. (laughs) Sometimes we, we may miss on some of these things, but we know a God who is gracious, a God who is loving, a God who sent a Messiah to fulfill this completely, that he might fulfill it in us. So let's pray that way as we close this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so blessed to be in your presence, and Lord, we know that you are holy and that you have a high standard for us. And Lord, I pray that we would live every day in light of your grace, in light of your mercy, and in light of your love, that we would have those new hearts that we would be transformed by the power of Christ to follow you more closely, to love you more deeply, to know you better, so that we can show others what you are like, even as we try to connect our friends to you. God, we ask these things in the name of our victorious King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, I want to thank you for being here this morning. I I pray that this has helped you understand God's commandments a little bit better. If you've got questions, we'd always love to talk to you afterwards. Uh, We're usually here up by the front or the third door. On the left is the hearth room where we'd love to get to know you better. Thank you for being here. Have a safe and wonderful holiday weekend.